Hey there, are you sick and tired of feeling sick and tired? Join Adol Kozilski and Fagy Stern as they explore ways to reverse chronic illness and achieve vibrant health. Your health is your only wealth and together we can be better. Hashtag Healthy You, Wealthy You. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to the Healthy You, Wealthy You program. My name is Adel Kozulski, and sitting in the driving seat. I don't know if you're driving, actually. <laughs> I'm in the standing seat with my reflux baby. <laughs> <laughs> so, really, this is a program about Faggy and her reflux baby, but and all the other reflux babies out there. Uh, today, we are going to be discussing with the one and only Dr. Kussel, Probably one of the things that I think most Jewish women fret about, and it actually allows you no sleep, and I think it raises anxiety a lot, and that is why do these little babies that we love so much, that we wait so much to have, sit and cry and perform, that we don't know what to do with them in the three months, and then we get all the, maybe some bobomices and some good advice on its colic, hold it like this, you know, Shake it upside down, do this, don't, don't, don't eat, don't do this, don't do it, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we are going to go and bust all these myths out today. Um, and if you have any questions, please join the conversation on 34519. That's our SMS line or 061-895-1019. So this is a show about how do we naturally attend to this phenomenon called colic. Good morning, Dr. Kassel. Good morning, Adel. Good morning, Faggy. Good morning, Dr. Kassel. Good morning, listeners. Thank you always for joining us, and we look forward for you sharing our wisdom. The floor is yours, Dr. Kassel. Get us out of our misery. What do we do with colic babies? Well, just to preamble it, you get made or broken as a pediatrician, doctor, uh, lactation consultant or whatever thing you may undertake on how you manage this problem in the first three months of life. So I will start without any further ado. In my presentation, I will deal with the common conceptions as well as the all too common misconceptions as to why the baby may cry in the first three months of life. My presentation will be under the following headings. Number one, gastroesophageal reflux. What is it and what are its related causes? Number two, gastroesophageal reflux versus colic. Number three, does the crying baby always mean it's hungry? Number four, the other causes to be considered. And number five, most important of all, the management of the condition of crying. Starting with gastroesophageal reflux, this accounts for a large percentage of persistently crying babies in the first three months of life. We have to understand what is meant by reflux. When the baby swallows its food, it passes down the esophagus and gets to the point where the esophagus enters the stomach. There it encounters a sphincter or muscle which relaxes to allow the food to enter the tummy. And as soon as the food has entered the tummy, this sphincter then closes and the food stays in the tummy. 
If this sphincter is weak or unable to close properly, as is the case in many newborns in the first three months of life, or if by upward pressure from the stomach the sphincter gets distended, reflux will then occur. It is important to remember that once the food has entered the tummy, it becomes acidified, and this then leads to all the known symptoms associated with reflux. Namely, as the refluxing acids irritate the nerves at the lower end of the esophagus, they set up a reflex which causes hiccups. This is probably the earliest sign in a newborn that reflux may be starting to occur. Always take notice of hiccups. Some very observant mothers may even notice the hiccups right at the end of the pregnancy in the baby that is going to reflux badly. The acids traveling up the esophagus will eventually irritate the throat, resulting in a sore throat, a cough, and heartburn, and this starts off the crying. The refluxing acid may then sometimes even be aspirated into the chest, causing a wheezing-like cough. And if still diagnosed, the reflux, especially in the first year of life, may irritate the auditory canals, resulting in recurrent otitis, ear infection, and in some cases the assertion of grommets. These would probably not be necessary if the reflux was diagnosed and dealt with in the first place. If you remember nothing else from today, remember that in cases of recurrent otitis, always exclude acid reflux. Wow, that's an, that's an interesting one. I mean, <clears throat> I'm about 30 years too late, but my one son, geez, we had recurrent otitis. Nobody ever, ever, ever thought about that or ever, you know, went and said, go check the reflux. Yeah, some of the ENT people today have fastened onto the problem and will tell you, exclude the reflux, exclude the gripping from above, and you will eliminate any problems with the ears. Too often grommets are put in and the problem still persists. All you're doing is punching a hole in the ear to allow the acid to come out. It's not sure. correcting the problem. <clears throat> but anyway, let's get on because we've, we've got a, the second topic or second heading is gastroesophageal reflux versus colic, a cause of much contentious debate. Remember that reflux is a condition, as we have outlined, caused by the presence of a persistently open or non-closing esophageal sphincter. Colic is a completely different condition related to intestinal spasm, the classic cause later on in life being spastic colon, which is usually in the much older child or adult and which is directly related to the intake of gas-producing foods combined with emotional factors of tension or anxiety, causing the bowel to go into spasm and the gases to over distend the spastic bowel, causing severe pain. There is no real reason for this condition to be at all operative in the first three months of life of a baby. And thus, in my opinion, should colic as a diagnosis should be very low down on the list. True enough, it can occur in some cases where the mother's diet goes horribly wrong 
and she eats lots of gas-producing foods. But then it's not, it's not really a major factor. Reflux is the major factor. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kozilski and Fagy Stern. Welcome back to the show. And we are understanding that when a kid is crying, when a little baby is crying, there can be all sorts of things. We just don't blame it on colic. And we're talking to Dr. Kassel. And I think just before the break, Dr. Kassel, you were telling us the difference between colic and? Reflux. Reflux. Okay, go ahead. The floor is yours again. So what then is the rationale, or rather the lack of rationale, with the use of colic medications. The list is so extensive that I would not even try to mention all of them by name. The colic medicine, or whatever type, basically consists of two main ingredients, a sedative and an antispasmodic. The sedatives used initially in any type of painful distress appear to work. Because for the first two or three days, whatever you give, the baby gets blotted out by the medication and sleeps. And you think that everything is working. But when the sedative effects start to wear off and the persistent reflux symptoms carry on, of course, the sedatives fail. Secondly, antispasmodics. When using antispasmodics, and I won't mention any by name, for a prolonged period of time, a flaccid, lazy bowel is produced, and this eventually leads to delayed emptying of the stomach and even severe constipation in some cases. As a consequence of this, food will start to accumulate in the stomach and produce upward pressure on the esophageal sphincter, causing the reflux symptoms to not only persist but sometimes even to worsen. So what do we deduce from this? In my opinion, colic medicines, certainly the prolonged use of colic medicines, are not the answer. They may produce an initial effect, but the chances of producing adverse adverse effects are too great to warrant their use. And they don't deal with the initial problem of reflux. They cannot. Thirdly, the crying baby. Is it a sign of hunger? The common misconception is that when a baby cries, it is hungry. True enough, this may well be so, but I can refer you to a a record that was produced about 15 or 20 years ago by a Cape Town pediatrician called The Cry of the Baby. It may still be available in some of the uh, shops. This record contains at least 15 different types of baby cries and only one of them strangely enough is hunger the baby can cry for any reason on earth including wet nappies lack of competent winding hunger and all the conditions we're going to outline subsequently but two basic principles apply to a uh, a crying baby and they re- they both relate to the method of feeding there is this tremendous controversy that goes on at the moment as to demand feeding how often you feed how frequently you feed how long you feed for 
and it's this controversy that has led to a lot of the problems. I will try to explain. First of all, the frequency of feeding. As in anything in the animal kingdom, there has to be set boundaries. A baby may take 100 ml of food every four hours, 50 ml of food every two hours, 6 ml of food every quarter of an hour, and in fact the the, the immature mother or the early mother, the first baby mother, may drive herself mad and be naked day and night if she responds to the baby every time the baby cries, puts it on the breast. This cannot be allowed to occur, and there have to be certain boundaries that get set with the frequency of feeding. I would say in the full-term baby, the, the baby should never be fed more frequently than three hourly in the day, and certainly not more frequently than four hourly at night. And if the baby goes for longer periods of time, good luck to you. You establish a normal breastfeeding cycle. The problem starts occurring when the baby starts niggling and the boba arrives in the house and says the baby is hungry, put it on the breast. That's the first road to disaster. <laughs> the baby niggles again and goes back on the breast. And in this way, it overfeeds grossly with this type of demand feeding. And it will inevitably lead to the problem of reflux occurring with a grossly distended tummy. That's the first problem in feeding. The second problem is the length of feeding. When a newborn baby is born, it usually sucks on the breast for 12 to 15 minutes each time. Not a half an hour and not one hour. The breast is not a dummy. It's not a comforter. It's an organ to feed the baby with. And so nature has given a woman breast to use 12 to 15 minutes each side to start with. And then as time goes on in the first three months, the times of feeding get less. They come down by increments to 10 to 12 minutes, to 8 to 10 minutes, to 6 to 8 minutes, to 4 to 6 minutes which is the level finally reached in the successfully feeding baby at three months of age. It's failure to adopt this principle of feeding that also leads to the many complications that occur and the problem of reflux again rears its ugly head. So you will see from what I'm saying, all three situations that I've mentioned here all relate to reflux in the end. And I haven't mentioned colic as a cause of the problems. Uh, Dr. Kelly. Dr. Kelly, are you done? Yes. How does it work, though, then, when a woman first gives birth? Are you saying that when she has to feed, she mustn't just keep the baby on her nonstop, that she should start from the beginning every three hours? The baby will tell you, you know, the baby's only means of communication with you is crying. That's but, then that's the, but then that's the problem, because if it's cried an hour later, you think it's hungry, you put the baby on you. No, but if it cries two hours later, you just assume that the baby's hungry. Boundaries. First of all, find out why it's crying. We're coming to it. It's not always hunger. It may be a wet nappy. It may be lack of proper winding. 
It may be other reasons. It's not always crying. So and as a mother, our first instinct is to feed our babies when it cries. She shouldn't necessarily feed the baby if it's crying, no. Shouldn't feed the baby under three hours in the day and shouldn't feed it under four hours at night. In this way, you get the baby into a, a cycle and you don't overfeed. That's if, definitely a huge, I mean, it's a huge thing to know, first of all, for a first-time mother. I mean, obviously, she has a lot more time on her hands to sit there feeding her baby all day long. But there is the concept of, um, you know, the on-demand feeding, which so many people do. Yes, but demand with limits. Demand up to two hours, yes, but not one hourly and half hourly and quarter hourly. It can't go on like that. So if it's at the two-and-a-half-hour mark and your baby's crying, you can pick it up and feed it if you know yes, that there's nothing else wrong with it. You can. It's, there's no rigid rules about that. But generally, one should try and establish a cycle with a baby. Because when I did the talk on feeding, I told you that the production of breast milk is according to a cycle. What the baby takes, you make. The baby can have five sucks and wake up in a quarter of an hour, give a little cry, and you'll give it another five sucks. But if you try and extend it long, it'll take more sucks and wake up later. So what happens if there's a woman then that is concerned that she doesn't have enough milk? Well, we, we'll answer that in question time. Not having enough milk okay. has many signs. The one is a flattening of the weight curve and a flattening of the weight gain. The second is the stools be changing in color from the normal yellow cream cream cheese type of stool to the green sparse stool to the persistently crying baby and the cry of a baby that's not getting enough milk that's starving is completely different to the cry of the hungry baby. Correct. That's that's why I would recommend she gets the record. Coming okay, to, you want, okay, go ahead. Coming to other causes now. I don't I want to just go through this by saying that the acute causes of crying in a baby are usually the sudden causes, such as hernia, bowel obstructions, and the like. They are not a cause of persistent crying in the baby that we are discussing today. But there are two important subjects, two important conditions that have to be borne in mind with a persistently crying baby. The one is lactose intolerance. Unfortunately, an all-too-common Jewish problem in Ashkenazi Jews where the genetic transmission of the condition occurs in every one in four Jewish mothers. Wow. I didn't know that. That's actually very, very interesting because yes. it, it's such an issue and we shout all the time about lactose intolerance. One in every four. One in every four. Wow. Doesn't the lactose intolerance, as you were mentioning before, also have an issue with the with the ears, with the ear infections? I know people that have, you know, the congestion, yes, sinuses, ear problems. A lot of it has to do with, with dairy. Yes, correct. But just to digress for a moment, lactose intolerance is not the initial red flag towards stopping or ceasing feeding immediately. You get too many practitioners that tell you your baby is lactose intolerant, stop the feed, stop the breast, put the baby onto an artificial formula. This is wrong. 
Lactose intolerance occurs in four or five different grades. When you test the stool, it's either a trace, one plus, two pluses, three pluses, or four pluses. The four plus lactose intolerance will be immediately apparent from birth. With the first or second breastfeed, the baby may even collapse with explosive watery stools. That is a very rare condition. The common conditions are trace, one plus, or even two plus. And these conditions, even though they are found on the stool, can usually be dealt with with correct feeding techniques and by the administration of a lactase enzyme in the form of co-leaf drops. This often saves the breastfeeding and it can certainly save other forms of feeding. If the mother is lactose intolerant herself and she eats dairy before she feeds the baby, does it have more of an effect on the baby? It does, yes, but the, the amount of that getting through into the milk is not significant. Obviously, the mother, if she does take little quantities of milk, she must go on taking little quantities of milk. I always advise with the breastfeeding that the mother must go on eating and drinking what she's always eaten and drunk. You know, the animals eat grass. If the mother ate grass, it would certainly affect the baby. The Some racial groups eat curry. Curry in the person who doesn't normally have curry can also affect the baby. So it depends. The correct path to follow is to go on eating and drinking what you've always eaten and drunk. And if she takes little quantities of milk, so be it. It's not going to worsen the lactose intolerance. So the rule to be obeyed is that any baby that cries unexplicably in the first three months of life, send off a simple stool for reducing substances. It will tell you if there is or isn't lactose intolerance and what the degree of lactose intolerance is. More importantly, what the degree is, because you don't want to abandon the very important breastfeeding unnecessarily. Can I just ask a, a, a question here? It's more kind of like based on on Jewish halacha, on Jewish uh, um, legal law. Uh, breast breast milk is considered parav. Is that the same as what the medical guys think, or there is lactose in breast milk? I think uh, that, just, that I think the halachic law is absolutely true because the amount the amount of substances that actually come through into breast milk are infinitesimal. And you know yourself with certain custard laws with gelatine, there used to be a kosher shop in uh, Yeovil that had three different grades of kosher for gelatine-containing sweets, uh, depending on the amount of gelatine that was present. Well, it's the same with lactose and the same with milk and the same with purry. The amount of milk getting through is infinitesimal. It's not great. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I would agree with the halachic law that it's, it's for all intents and purposes parov. So then, there really, in, in theory, there shouldn't be a problem with a baby saying that he's lactose intolerant to his mother. No, not, not lactose intolerant to the mother, but lactose intolerant to the milk that the mother's putting in because 50% of the sugar of breast milk is lactose. Uh And if the baby doesn't have sufficient lactase enzyme, it won't digest that 50% of lactose. 
and therefore the milk will be deleterious to it. Right, right. I found, Dr. Castle, that giving my baby MAGFAS has helped tremendously. Giving what? MAGFAS, magnesium, the salts. The tissue salts. salts. Yeah, well, that's a natural remedy, but it, it, again, it, it can deal with certain symptoms of lactose intolerance. Correct. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't but take it, it away. It can help it in the, in the it moment. It can help it. Okay, that's pretty interesting. Okay, continue, doctor. All right. The second thing that should always be done is the urine should be tested because urine infection is always the thing that stumps the, the practitioner. If a baby goes on crying endlessly in the first three months of life, be careful of the urinary tract. Either urinary tract infection or urinary tract obstruction, uh, meatal stenosis and those conditions. So always test the urine, always test the stool. That's the rule to remember. So if your baby is constantly crying, are you speaking about specifically a child that doesn't stop crying? Well, not necessarily doesn't stop crying, but cries, un cries unnaturally. You know, just goes on crying, doesn't settle down, doesn't sleep properly, wakes up crying. And, of course, the bobber comes in and says it's hungry. <laughs> all we need is the bobbers and the domestics to be telling us to feed our babies all day long I, I take umbrage I'm a bobber and I'm actually the other way around I keep on telling my, my kids stop feeding your babies you're over feeding them not every single cry is, 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 is about and also buy them the record at exclusive books <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Kassel what would you do if there was a urinary tract infection in a baby well, first of all, urinary tract infection in males and females is different. The female, because of a shorter urethra, gets infections a lot more frequently, especially when you don't change or dress the baby properly with a nappy. If you tend to clean the baby from the anus towards the vulval area, you will undoubtedly push stools and feces and all sorts of things into the available area. You should always clean from the front to the back. Yes. And always make sure that there's not feces lying around in the available area. So we don't immediately investigate a female infant. A male infant is different. Because in the Jewish case, the male infant has a bris. And when the bris heals, you can, even with the greatest mole in the world, the greatest surgeon in the world, you get the bris healing with scarring. And that scar forms a little scab over the whole of the penis, which is called meatal stenosis. And that's another cry on the record which you can buy. The cry of the baby with meatal stenosis. We're going to just stop there for a little while. We are going to go for a break. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, 34519 or 061-895-1019. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kosilski and Fagy Stern. We are having a discussion with Dr. Kassel about that crying baby and all the myths and all the truths about why the baby is crying. I think just before the show, we finished up um, speaking about the fact that it could be a urine infection. What else could it be, Dr. Kassel? It can be a... The urinary infection is due to stasis, which I'll do in a separate program, 
when urine becomes static, when it doesn't clear properly from the kidney down to the urethral opening, then static urine becomes infected, and the baby with persistent urinary tract infection always has to be invest- always has to be investigated. And one of the earliest signs of persistent urinary tract infection is the crying baby in the first three months of life. And I would like to leave it at there because I want to leave myself some time to discuss management. There are a myriad, myriad of other causes of why a baby can cry, but they are usually related to acute onset, like I mentioned, an acute hernia, an acute, an acute strangulation, an acute intersusception, an acute obstruction of the bowel. They are not persistently crying babies. They are acutely crying babies, which is completely different. So how do we manage the crying baby? The basic rule of management is to apply the laws of nature as, the, as in my opinion, the only real way of managing it and to apply the laws of gravity. This means that you feed the baby in a, uh, in a semi-upright or upright position. You wind the baby in the same position. You carry the baby during the day in a kango pouch or, as some women do, on their backs. And when you put the baby down to rest, you make sure that it is also elevated on a wedge or at least an infant seat in the extreme cases. Gravity is the determining factor in dealing with this problem. And you see it, you see it in, uh, in, you see it in the animal kingdom. How many babies of uh, animals actually spend their time crying for three months? They don't. Because <laughs> they don't have the Jewish grandmother, doctor. Yeah. <laughs> All you need to do is find the grandmother in the, in the forest. Um, Dr. Castle, but then how would you how would you explain about a baby being like too spoilt by being held or being upright or being on the mother for three months? Well, if I can just finish before I come to that with the rest of the management of the the baby. In my opinion, gravity is the way to manage the baby. Now, just to deal with the other methods of management which some people use. The use of Nexium, Infant Gaviscon, and Losec. These are used to alleviate the symptoms of acid reflux, but they can have absolutely no effect on the reflux as such. And likewise, the, less, the reflux persists. The same applies to anti-reflux formulae. They stop the reflux from occurring, but eventually produce their own complications. They have initially help, but in the long term, they won't help. Hmm. We all need to know that the reflux is there to stay. We just need to learn how to deal with it. Yeah, well, as for the reasons mentioned earlier, chronic medicines have a really limited place, in, the, in my opinion, in the management of a baby in the first three months of life. There will be many people that disagree with me, but that is my opinion after all the years of clinical practice. Be wary of the colic medicines. So 
I, I'm going to leave 10 minutes for questions, but there'll be innumerable questions. I just want to conclude with a very wise statement made by Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, which I love to, whose works I love to read and to quote. I quote as follows. Hashem speaks to us through nature. For me, there has never been a more classic example of the role of nature in the understanding and management of the crying baby. Be natural and you'll control it. I, I, I absolutely love that. And in fact, uh, yesterday um, I was talking to Fagy privately and um, I wasn't talking about colic. I was just talking about uh, you know other things. And I said to Fagy, I think one of the, the things that we are missing today is the intuition to actually understand that nature does talk to you, not only with the, with, with the crying baby, but, but even with yourself. That, for example, I found out that I was allergic to tomatoes, but for so, so, so long, every time I sat with the salad, I would eat the salad and I would pick around the tomatoes. Like I didn't have an appetite for it. And my body was saying to me, don't eat it. It's not good for you. And if a person could just actually stop and sometimes listen to their body, and hear what their body is saying or what their baby is saying, I think that we would actually manage ourselves much better. You are so true in what you say. In fact, also years ago, there was a book called Man Alive, Your Heart Dead. That was the title of the book. And the book actually dealt with how incorrect eating and incorrect intake of foods leads to the major diseases which we suffer from today. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. If we listen to the voice of nature, if we listen to some of our natural doctors, not the very scientific ones, we would be far better off, in my opinion. Well, we're, Adel, we're, you were talking yesterday about uh, your intermittent fasting. I think we have to kind of apply that to our babies as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. There's no question. And it's it's really, really interesting just to, to share with the listeners um, – one of my granddaughters, when my daughter came home, she came to convalesce at my house, and it, it was actually quite interesting. We, we had a very ratty baby, you know, and so, you know, in Jewish terms, she's not eating, she's not saying, check that. And eventually, you know what, I, I just observed the way the child was feeding, and it, it was a mad thing, but this child only latched and only fed if you picked it up and say it was sleeping on its left side, Okay, which I guess um, it had got warmth from the blankets and, uh, you know, the the, uh, the mattress on, say, her left ear. Then I'd have to put her on her left side where her ear was touching her mother. She latched. If we swapped it around, I, I, I don't know why. Maybe it was just the warmth of that ear now being exposed to the cold. It was impossible to latch. And so we just did a swap every single, you know, when she finished feeding on the left and we put it to sleep, we put it to sleep on the right. When she woke up on the right, we started feeding with her with her right ear still touching the mother. And it worked wonders. The kids settled down. But it was like just all about that intuition and about like just actually watching what was happening. We're going to go for a little bit of a, uh, an ad break and we're going to be wrapping up shortly. This is the Healthy You, Wealthy You show with Adol Kosilski and Fagy Stern. We have about one or two minutes left. Dr. Kassel, sort out one more thing. How long do you sit with a baby on your lap, winding the baby? Like, 
sometimes I feel that, you know, people feed and then spend the next two and a half hours trying to win the baby only to get into a cycle then that the baby's hungry and tired and you start the cycle again. I also just found that when it comes to reflux, a lot of the time the baby does have a lot of wins. And if you try and put them down, it's not only the reflux that's causing the problem. You have to kind of pick them up and get them to, to burp. You sit the baby up in a sitting position with the legs in front of it. You let the baby drop into your hand on, on the baby's tummy. And you keep the baby like that for two to three minutes. If it has wins, it will win. If it hasn't got wins, it won't win. And you put it down. Uh, you don't shake the baby around. You don't turn it upside down. You don't. <laughs> I, I, I so love, I so love your wisdom, uh, uh, Doctor Castle. I agree hundred percent. You see these like parents, you know, middle of the night. They've got black black bags under their eyes, and they're walking up and down the corridor, like putting the baby over the shoulder, knocking the baby, probably like dislocating their vertebra, <laughs> waiting for that wind, and. You don't wind after every meal, do you? Every time <laughs> you, eat. you don't sit there gripping every time you eat. <clears throat> Neither does the baby. Absolutely love you. I love want it, to say the final word. Yes, go ahead. Adel, you've changed my opinion of grandmothers and bobbers. <laughs> a sensible grandmother I've listened to in my experience. <laughs> I hope my daughter's on the same page. remember one thing. There is no such thing as a spoiled baby. It's spoiled handling. The baby's only means of communicating with you is crying. You must understand that crying. And if you can't understand the crying, just pick it up. It's its only means of communication. Give it a cuddle, give it a kiss, and hold it until it stops crying. That I love it. Thank you. Don't call the baby spoiled. (laughs) My baby's not spoiled. Don't worry, Dr. (laughs) Cuzzle. Well, there you go now, Faggy. You've got all all the things that, you know. Well, Abel, you would have wanted to be my baby's grandmother. You tried to give me all of this advice, but I didn't necessarily take it. I just kept on saying my baby's got reflux. There you go. (laughs) Well, this has, as always, been an incredibly um, inspiring and informative uh, radio show. Thank you, Dr. Castle, for always joining us and sharing of your wisdom. And for all the mothers out there, I think that you've got lots of stuff to think about. And as, as, as mentioned, and I think we've emphasized it a lot today, you've got to... Um, survive on your mother instinct, on your intuition, and there's a natural process happening. And um, this actually talks to you if you if you if you dare to listen. Thank you, Dr. Castle, for joining us. Thank you, Faggy, always for uh, putting the show together. And thank you for listening. Uh, if you'd like to join our uh, WhatsApp group, you can send an email to info at highfm.com with your name and your number, and you are most welcome to join the WhatsApp group once a day. Faggy and I just drop in a thought about how you can live more healthy, more naturally. Have a wonderful week ahead, and we will be back same time, same place next Wednesday.